I'm Ted O'Connell, one of the authors of Crush Step 1, the ultimate USMLE Step 1 review, along with my co-authors, Ryan Pedigo and Thomas Blair. I am also the chief content officer for Inside the Boards. This is the Crush Step 1 podcast based on the second edition of our best-selling book. The goal is to provide you high-yield and high-quality audio content of the book to help you study on the go and reclaim some of the time in your day. Hi, this is Ryan Pedigo, and I'm one of the authors of Crush Step 1 Second Edition, and I'm also the Director of Undergraduate Medical Education at Harbor UCLA Medical Center, as well as an Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, and I'll be narrating the cardiology chapter. The overview, so the heart, of course, is responsible for pumping oxygen and nutrient-rich blood to all of your organs. If it stops, then you pretty much die. The heart blood and blood vessels make up the cardiovascular system. The heart has four chambers. It has the right atrium, right ventricle, left atrium, and left ventricle. And it's definitely important to know the path that the blood takes through these chambers to understand how problems with these chambers will then lead to symptoms and signs. Every time blood leaves a ventricle, it's going through an artery. So when it leaves the right ventricle, it's going into the pulmonary artery. When it leaves the left ventricle, it's going into the aorta. Arteries take blood away from the heart. Veins, such as the superior and inferior vena cava, return blood back to the heart, to the right atrium, just like the pulmonary veins return blood to the left atrium. Whenever blood goes from an atrium to a ventricle or from a ventricle to an artery, it goes through a valve, and if it's working correctly, then blood only flows in the right direction. However, Blood can be impeded in the case of valvular stenosis from passing through, or blood can backflow with regurgitation. We're going to take a quick tour of blood and how it goes through your body. So in your capillary beds, that's where the tissues are going to take up oxygen from the blood and deliver their metabolic waste like carbon dioxide. This deoxygenated blood will then return to the heart again through veins the superior and inferior vena cava, and that'll dump blood into the right atrium. From the right atrium, it'll then go through the tricuspid valve into the right ventricle. From the right ventricle, it's then going to go through the pulmonic valve into the pulmonary arteries, which then takes uh, deoxygenated blood to the lungs, lets you drop off all that CO2, and then replenish the oxygen supply in the blood with the alveolar capillaries. This newly oxygenated blood will then return to the left atrium through the pulmonary veins, then going through the left atrium to the mitral valve to the left ventricle. From the left ventricle, it will then go to the aorta through the aortic valve. From the aorta, which is your main artery that then distributes blood to all of your organs, uh, it will then continue the process, eventually going to capillary beds, back to veins, and then back to the right atrium to restart the process. Other than just the chambers of the heart, it's also important to understand the basic anatomy of the heart. The heart has three layers, and from inside to out, it's the endocardium, myocardium, and epicardium. The endocardium is just a single layer of endothelial cells, and it lines the entire inside of the heart, including the valves. And this is basically like the endothelial cells that would line blood vessels. Ischemia of the heart can start in the subendocardial area, affecting just the endocardium. And in infective endocarditis, you can get infections, especially the heart valves. The next layer is the myocardium, which is the thick striated muscle of the heart, and that's responsible for the pumping activity. 
These are perfused by the coronary arteries, and the death of this cardiac muscle can cause the heart to fail, such as in a myocardial infarction. The last layer is the epicardium, which is actually the visceral pericardium. So what I mean by that is the heart is surrounded by a pericardium, and that's a double-walled sac. And this double-walled sac has a serosal visceral layer, which is the inner layer. And it also has a fibrous parietal outer layer. And between the visceral and parietal pericardium, there's a tiny amount of pericardial fluid, which is kind of like lubrication. It just lets the heart beat with minimal friction. However, in disease states like in pericarditis or pericardial effusion, you can get pathology here. So in pericarditis, you get inflammation of this pericardial sac, and that can cause pain, and it can also cause a pericardial effusion or additional fluid to develop. The problem with that is the fibrous outer pericardium is not very stretchy. So if you develop fluid too fast, it'll actually then exert pressure on the heart because it can't stretch out that fibrous outer layer. That can cause pericardial tamponade, which is a life-threatening condition. As part of the anatomy of the heart, we also need to talk about the electrical conduction system of the heart, which ensures rapid coordinated contraction of the heart. Without this, everything would just be beating randomly, and it wouldn't be this nice coordinated system that it is. The electrical system of the heart has four main components. It has the sinoatrial, or SA node. It has the atrioventricular, or AV node. And then it has the right and left bundle branches. The sinoatrial node, or SA node, is the pacemaker of the heart. It gets depolarized rhythmically, depending on various stimuli, And these depolarize the atria, and that signal is eventually conducted to the AV node, which is the next node that we're going to talk about. The faster the sinoatrial node depolarizes, the faster your atrial rate, and as long as all of those beats are conducting, meaning you don't have a heart block, that'll lead to a faster ventricular rate as well. The atrioventricular node is named because it lies between the atria and the ventricles, the atria being on the, quote, top of the heart and the ventricles being on the, quote, bottom of the heart. And in the normal heart, this is the only place where this electrical signal can go from the atria to the ventricles. In disease states, like in Wolf-Parkinson-White, you have a separate bundle called a bundle of Kent, and that can actually leak electrical current through a part other than the AV node. Once a signal goes through the AV node, it gets transmitted to the bundle of Hiss, which then divides into right and left bundle branches. These bundle branches are responsible for coordinated contraction of their respective ventricles. So if you have a left bundle branch block, you're going to have uncoordinated contraction of the left ventricle. And if you have a right bundle branch block, then you may have discoordinated or slow conduction uh, leading to abnormal depolarization of the right ventricle. When we talk a little bit later about additional disease states, The atrioventricular node and the bundle of Hiss are the sites of pathology when we talk about heart blocks. The coronary arteries are responsible for perfusion of the heart. These can be narrowed, like when you have atherosclerosis, or blockage, like if you have a plaque rupture and thrombosis, can lead to angina, chest pain, or a myocardial infarction. You can also get vasospasm of these arteries, causing Prinz Metals angina. So all of these things are important to know for step one and for clinical practice. The aortic valve, you'll recall, has three cusps. There's a right and left cusp, and then there's a non-coronary cusp, because you only have a right and left coronary artery coming off of these, so one of the three is left out and doesn't have its own artery. The left coronary artery divides pretty quickly into the left anterior descending artery, or LAD, which supplies the anterior left ventricle, and the circumflex artery, which supplies the lateral and posterior left ventricle. 
The LAD is the most commonly occluded vessel in a myocardial infarction. The right coronary artery, however, supplies the right ventricle. And in most people, about 85%, the posterior descending artery comes off this right coronary artery, which we call a right dominant system. That means it perfuses the inferior and posterior part of the heart. In a smaller amount of individuals, the PDA comes off the circumflex, which we call left dominant, or it can come off both, which we call co-dominant. Because the right coronary artery also supplies the SA node and AV node, it's very common to get bradycardia and heart blocks if you have a right coronary artery lesion. Now that we have covered the anatomy of the heart and its electrical conduction system, we're also going to cover the anatomy of the circulatory system because the heart is responsible for pumping blood through this system. You can think about the pulmonary circulation and the systemic circulation separately. The pulmonary circulation is the right side of the heart, so the right atria, tricuspid valve, right ventricle, and pulmonic valve, as well as the pulmonary arteries, capillaries, and pulmonary veins. This is an atypical system because even though arteries, again, are taking blood away from the heart, and that's true in the pulmonary circulation, it's taking deoxygenated blood. In all other arteries, you're going to have oxygenated blood. But in the pulmonary circulation, remember, it's just come back from the veins, the superior and inferior vena cava, and it has all that metabolic waste and all that oxygen's gone. So now it has to get to the alveoli to be replenished. So once it goes from the right atrium through the tricuspid valve into the right ventricle through the pulmonic valve and into the pulmonary artery, it's then going to go into the alveolar capillaries where it's then going to dump that CO2 into the alveoli to let you exhale it. And it's going to take all that oxygen in the alveoli and put it into the blood because the hemoglobin has such a high affinity for it. After that capillary bed, now it's going to enter the pulmonary veins and then go into the left atrium. It then is now entering the systemic circulation, which is the left side of the heart, which is the left atrium, mitral valve, left ventricle, aortic valve, aorta, and then all of your body's other arteries. It will then go into, of course, arterioles, capillaries, venules, and veins. The goal of this circulation is to take oxygenated blood to the body to give you oxygen and nutrients and return that newly deoxygenated blood after it does that back to the right side of the heart. Briefly talking about each of these items, the arteries are these very thick-walled things because they're receiving blood from ventricles, so they have to be pretty beefy and strong because the left ventricle is generating very high pressures. The pressures, in fact, that you measure with a blood pressure cuff, usually at the level of the brachial artery. So they have to withstand these large changes in pressure. Arteries have three layers. The inner layer is the intima, and then the um, middle layer is the media, and then the outer layer is the adventitia. And that houses what we call the vasa visorum, which is the vessel of vessels. And these are blood vessels that actually nourish the artery itself, because just like every other part of your body, it needs blood to function. After arteries, you have arterioles. And arterioles, you can think of as kind of the resistance modifier. So if you need blood to certain parts of your body more than other parts, the arterioles are what's going to be the main site of resistance. And that's regulated by alpha-1 receptors for constriction and beta-2 receptors for dilation. So if you are bleeding to death, you know, your foot doesn't really need all that blood flow, but your heart and your brain do. So your body's going to vasoconstrict all of those non-important things as you're bleeding to death that can withstand the ischemia from not getting blood. So that way, hopefully, you can continue to perfuse kind of the mission-critical things like your heart and your brain. 
Similarly, when people go into anaphylactic shock, they get widespread vasodilation from histamine release from mast cell degranulation, and that drops your systemic vascular resistance because all your arterioles are just opening up and all of your capillaries become leaky, and that leads to distributive shock. Capillaries have a single layer of endothelial cells, and it has to be that way because it needs to diffuse and exchange all these gases, fluid, and nutrients uh, between the blood and the tissues. If it were thick, like the arteries and arterioles, oxygen could never diffuse through there. And what's going to diffuse in the amount of fluid exchange that occurs is dictated by starling forces, which tell you what the net driving force is. The starling forces in the capillary beds are going to be dependent on the hydrostatic pressure and the oncotic pressure. So the starling force formula is that the net force is basically going to be all of the forces that promote fluid leaving the capillary and going into the tissues, minus all the forces that promote fluid returning to the capillaries. And that formula is going to be the hydrostatic pressure in the capillaries plus the oncotic pressure in the interstitium, or the tissues surrounding the capillaries, subtracted from the pressure in the interstitium plus the oncotic pressure of the capillaries. That may sound a little bit confusing, but it is pretty intuitive. When you think about what keeps fluid inside of the capillary, prevents it from leaving the capillary, that's going to be the oncotic pressure inside of the capillary and the pressure that the interstitium is pushing back into the capillary on. Similarly, the forces promoting fluid leaving the capillary are going to be the oncotic pressure of the interstitium and the pressure inside the capillary because the pressure inside the capillary is what's pushing out. If you have a positive net pressure, then fluids will tend to leave the capillary. And if you have a negative net pressure, fluids will tend to return to the capillary. After the capillary bed, you go to venules and veins. And these are thin-walled because they're meant to be what's called capacitance vessels, meaning they can just hold a bunch of fluid in them. And they'll basically stay there until your body needs to mobilize that to get increased venous return. Like if you are starting to run and you need more of that venous blood to return to your heart because you have to circulate it faster. So now we've covered the overview and anatomy of each of these things. Next, we'll be talking about physiology. To be able to have a discussion about cardiovascular physiology, first we're going to have to talk about the terminology and formulas that are associated with it. The first two definitions are systole and diastole. Systole is the phase in which the heart contracts, so that's pumping blood in the ventricles into the arteries through the pulmonic valve if it's the right ventricle, and through the aortic valve if it's the left ventricle. Diastole is the phase during which the heart relaxes and lets the ventricles fill with new blood from the atria. And recall that on the right heart, that's going from the right atrium through the tricuspid valve into the right ventricle. And in the left heart, that's going from the left atrium through the mitral valve into the left ventricle. Although the duration of systole and diastole can be shortened, like when you're exercising or if you are in shock, the time spent diastole is decreased substantially more to allow for a greater heart rate. The next definition is mean arterial pressure, or MAP. Because the heart spends more time in diastole than in systole, it's not a simple average between systole and diastole, which you might think would be the case because when we talk about means, usually we're talking about averages. But in this case, your heart spends much more time in diastole than systole. 
So the definition of MAP is two-thirds of the diastolic pressure plus one-third of the systolic pressure, because again, it's more weighted towards your diastolic pressure because a larger amount of the cardiac cycle, which is systole plus diastole, is spent inside of diastole. This is a rough formula, and as your heart rate gets faster and faster, your body tries to decrease the time in diastole because it's kind of hard to decrease how fast your heart contracts. Um, so diastole can be shortened much more easily than systole. And so at higher heart rates, the formula would not be as accurate because you're spending a smaller amount of time in diastole. The stroke volume is the left ventricular end diastolic volume subtracted from the left ventricular end systolic volume. What this means is it's how much blood is ejected from the heart expressed in milliliters. So if your heart started with a lot of fluid, meaning the end diastolic volume, and then ended systole with a very small amount of fluid, then that would be a large stroke volume because it took a lot of blood delivered to it in diastole and gave it to the aorta at the end of systole. With heart failure, you often have diminished stroke volumes because your left ventricular end systolic volume is high because your heart muscle is weak and is unable to squeeze out all that blood that was delivered to it. The ejection fraction, or EF, is the systolic volume divided by the left ventricular and diastolic volume. Whereas stroke volume is a number of milliliters ejected by the heart, ejection fraction is what percent of blood that was delivered to the heart was ejected. A normal ejection fraction is usually greater than or equal to 55%, and when you have systolic heart failure, then that number is significantly reduced. Cardiac output is stroke volume times heart rate. Cardiac output is how many liters per minute of blood that you are circulating. This is equal to your stroke volume multiplied by your heart rate, which is intuitive because the stroke volume, remember, is how many milliliters you are ejecting per beat. And heart rate is how many times your heart beats per minute. So therefore, if you multiply the stroke volume, which is how many milliliters per beat is ejected, by how many beats per minute you're doing, that gives you a measure of cardiac output. Your body is going to increase cardiac output when necessary for things like exercise. The next definition is the total peripheral resistance, or TPR. And the formula that to remember for that is that the mean arterial pressure, which we already defined earlier, is equal to your cardiac output multiplied by your total peripheral resistance. The total peripheral resistance is the resistance in the entire systemic circulation because this is peripheral resistance. So we're not talking about the pulmonary circulation. We're talking about what your left heart is delivering blood to, which is your arteries uh, and your systemic circulation. The arterioles, which we talked about earlier, is the main determinant of this. They constrict when you have alpha-1 agonism to increase total peripheral resistance, and they can dilate as a result of beta-2 receptor activation to decrease total peripheral resistance. In anaphylaxis, histamine release causes widespread arteriolar dilation, which decreases your total peripheral resistance. Poisson's equation states that the resistance in a vessel is equal to 8 times the viscosity times the length 
divided by pi times radius to the fourth power. This is a pretty complex formula, so let's break it down. Resistance, therefore, is proportional to the viscosity, meaning higher viscosity, higher resistance. So if you have polycythemia, where you have lots of red blood cells, or multiple myeloma, where you have lots of protein, your resistance will increase linearly. Resistance is also proportional to length to the first power. What this means is a longer vessel is going to have more resistance than a shorter vessel. The most important thing, both clinically and in testing, however, is that resistance is proportional to the inverse of radius to the fourth power. Whereas viscosity and length were to the first power, meaning a doubling in viscosity means a doubling in resistance, and a doubling in length means a doubling in resistance, the radius is to the fourth power. Therefore, if you double the radius, then it decreases the resistance by 2 to the fourth power, or 16 times. This also becomes important clinically when we talk about placing IV catheters or central lines, where longer catheters are going to have more resistance, meaning you can get less fluid per second into the patient. But the biggest determinant is the size of that catheter, because it's radius to the fourth power. So placing a much larger IV gives you exceptionally higher flow rates because the determinant of resistance is so heavily dependent on the radius over everything else. The last two definitions are preload and afterload. Preload is based on your ventricular end diastolic volume, meaning how much blood has come back to the heart by venous return. Sympathetic tone increases this, but venodilators such as nitroglycerin decrease this, or hypovolemia because preload is how much blood is being delivered to the ventricle, how much is available to potentially be ejected during the next cardiac cycle. Afterload in the left heart is based on your mean arterial pressure and is essentially how much pressure the heart has to work against to eject blood. Increase afterload, like with hypertension, or even aortic stenosis, uh, which is going to be a blockage between the left heart and the aorta, which would not be reflected in your mean arterial pressure, causes the heart to have to work harder and consume more oxygen to eject blood, and likely will also decrease your stroke volume. The next section that we're going to go over is electrophysiology. So we described the anatomy of the electrical conducting system, including the SA node, the AV node, the bundle of Hiss, and the right and left bundle branches but we also need to talk about it on a cellular level because this is the basis for an organization of a coordinated and effective contraction of the heart. The heart rate is set by the pacemaker that generates electrical signals or action potentials at the fastest rate. Typically, that's your SA node. Now, if your SA node is damaged for non-functional for whatever reason, then usually the AV node is the next fastest automatic pacemaker, and then we'll have what's called the junctional rhythm, which we'll go over later, and then the bundle branches, and then the individual cardiac myocytes. So what this means is usually the SA node spontaneously depolarizes the most rapidly, so it usually assumes pacemaker function of the heart. But in descending order, the AV node and bundle of Hiss, the bundle branches, and cardiac myocytes can pick up the slack if the pacemakers that are normally faster than that are not working. 
Pacemaker cells, such as the SA node, they don't require outside stimuli to generate an action potential. They are self-depolarizing. The rate of that depolarization depends on how many funny sodium channels are open. These are called funny because they're open before an action potential occurs, which is odd because normally when we talk about action potentials, the opening of sodium channels is the reason the action potential is occurring, whereas these are opening slowly depolarizing the cell automatically until it reaches its threshold voltage. When the heart rate's slow, there are fewer of these channels open and the sodium current will be lower. And this would be the case if you were taking beta blockers or if you had parasympathetic stimulation, so you're resting. Uh, but if you have increased needs for cardiac output, you're going to have more of these channels be open and the SA node will spontaneously depolarize more rapidly. Pacemaker cells don't know how to count. Normally, when we talk about the phases of the ventricular muscle, we're going to talk about 0, 1, 2, 3, and 4 for the phases. For a pacemaker cell, it's 0, 3, and 4. Phase 0 is when the funny sodium channels leak enough sodium to reach its threshold potential. Voltage-gated calcium channels will open and cause further depolarization. This is slower than in myocytes because they want the ventricles time to fill before the AV node fully transmits the signal to them. If this depolarization were incredibly rapid and there was no delay, then once the SA node depolarized, which is first depolarizing the atria to give you that atrial kick at the end of diastole, then the ventricle would then try to contract before it was ready to be full. The next phase, again, knowing that pacemaker cells don't know how to count, 0, 3, 4, is phase 3. So the calcium channels close and potassium channels open to repolarize the cell by causing potassium efflux. And then in phase 4, the funny sodium channels open, slowly depolarizing the cell again until the threshold potential is reached when phase 0 will start again. The cardiac myocytes have a more typical phase progression. And these are responsible for the contraction of the heart and depolarize when they've received the signal from the conducting system of the heart or nearby myocytes. So this goes 0, 1, 2, 3, and 4. Phase 0, once the threshold potential has been reached, your sodium channels will open and cause an influx of sodium, rapidly depolarizing the cell. So this is a very rapid upstroke due to sodium. However, in the pacemaker cells, remember that this uh, influx is slower and mediated by calcium. Phase 1, the sodium channels close and some potassium efflux occurs, so you get a very small drop in voltage initially. But by phase 2, L-type calcium channels, L for long-lasting, open, which gives you a plateau where potassium efflux is balanced with calcium influx. This trigger calcium releases more stored calcium from within the sarcoplasmic reticulum in the cardiac myocyte and will lead to contraction. And we'll talk about how that contraction works with calcium right after we finish talking about these phases. During phase three, the calcium channels are inactivated. And now, instead of having a balanced amount of potassium efflux and calcium influx, now you just have potassium efflux, which repolarizes the cell. And phase zero is the resting state. And so these don't spontaneously depolarize under normal conditions, unlike the other pacemaker cells of the heart, and wait for another depolarizing signal before the process restarts. For cardiac myocytes, although in chapter 12 there's a little bit more detailed uh, description of muscle contraction, we'll talk a little bit about the importance of cardiac myocyte contraction briefly. 
Troponin has a few different types, troponin T, troponin I, and troponin C. Troponin I inhibits, so I inhibits contraction, and troponin C binds to calcium, so I inhibits C calcium. When calcium binds to troponin C, it stops troponin I's inhibition and allows for actin and myosin to interact and for contraction to occur. Therefore, the more calcium you have, the more calcium will bind to troponin C, the more inhibition will be removed, and the more actin-myosin interaction you'll have, so you will have an increased strength of contraction because you'll have more actin and myosin interaction, and we call this increased contractility or inotropy. Calcium influx during phase 2 of myocyte depolarization causes stored calcium to be released from the sarcoplasmic reticulum, which is called calcium-induced calcium release. Because you remember, during phase 2 of the cardiac myocyte action potential, the L-type calcium channels are leaking in calcium, which then trigger the sarcoplasmic reticulum inside the cell to release a substantially larger amount of calcium. After this calcium release into the cell from the sarcoplasmic reticulum, myocytes can move that calcium back into the sarcoplasmic reticulum or out of the cell. This is an important therapeutic consideration because when we give people digoxin, this prevents calcium efflux of the cell, and that causes increased retrieval into the sarcoplasmic reticulum because the calcium has to go somewhere. It can go out of the cell or back into the sarcoplasmic reticulum. Also, sympathetic activation of beta-1 receptors causes increased sarcoplasmic reticulum calcium ATPase activity called CIRCA, and this is the pump that pumps calcium back into the sarcoplasmic reticulum. That leads to increased calcium being stored inside the sarcoplasmic reticulum, and so on subsequent contractions, you'll have increased contractility. This is pretty complex, but it's just important to keep the concept in mind that more calcium availability leads to increased contractility by increased actin and myosin interaction. The actin, which are thin filaments, and the myosin, which are thick filaments, overlap much better when stretched. And therefore, when you have more blood returning to the heart, remember that's increased preload, will fill the heart more, causing the myocytes to stretch, and in turn creating a stronger contraction. This is sometimes confused for increased contractility, but that would be incorrect. Contractility is the ability to contract at a given preload. So even though you will have a stronger contraction with more preload because you have better actin and myosin interaction, it is not increased contractility because contractility holds the preload constant. And again, that's mostly mediated by how much intracellular calcium you have available. More preload leads to a stronger contraction, but not increased contractility. The Frank-Starling curve describes the force of contraction of the myocytes, and this is again dependent on the initial length of the cardiac muscle fiber, the degree of stretch, which is determined by the preload. So if you have more venous return, more preload, larger ventricular and diastolic volume, and more muscle fiber stretch, which leads to a stronger contraction. Contractility is the force at a given preload, so increasing the preload does nothing to the contractility. Increased contractility on the Frank-Starling curve would be a whole new curve, such as the positive inotropic effects when you have beta-1 stimulation or digoxin usage. But when you have different amounts of preload, you are moving along the same Frank-Starling curve.
The next thing that we're going to talk about are heart sounds and murmurs. Heart sounds are generated by the closing of valves. So when a valve closes, you hear a heart sound. Understanding, therefore, when valves open normally and close normally during the cardiac cycle, which again is one systole and one diastole, will make it really easy to understand how abnormal valve or heart function causes these abnormal sounds. A mnemonic commonly used to remember where to best auscultate for each valve is apartment M, which is A-P-T-M, for aortic, pulmonic, tricuspid, and mitral. And these are in the different areas where you would listen to the heart, on the right sternal border, the left sternal border, the left lower sternal border, and at the apex. S1 refers to the sound made normally by the closure of your tricuspid and mitral valves, and this is the end of diastole, because now the mitral and tricuspid valves are closed, meaning all of the blood from the atria is now delivered to the ventricle, and these happen almost at the exact same time, so you don't get any splitting of this sound. The S2 is by the closure of the pulmonic and aortic valves, which is referred to P2 for the pulmonic valve and A2 for the aortic valve. This sound marks the end of systole because the ejection of blood from the ventricle is totally done. This you can get physiologic splitting of, which is totally normal. During inspiration, your intrathoracic pressure becomes more negative, sucking more blood back into the right atrium from the vena cava, increasing venous return to the right heart. This increases right ventricular preload because now there's more blood available to deliver it to the right ventricle. This prolongs how long it takes for this blood to go to the right ventricle because there is more blood to deliver. This moves P2 after A2 and causes the S2 sound to be split. And again, that's physiologic splitting. On expiration, this doesn't occur because now P2 and A2 occur at the same time, causing the S2 sound to not to be split. There's a couple times to remember when this splitting can be pathologic. So the first is called fixed splitting, and this happens when P2 and A2 are split for inspiration and expiration. And this usually occurs with an atrial septal defect, because in an atrial septal defect, there's a hole between the two atria. Because there's a left-to-right shunt present, because left atrial pressures are higher, the right ventricle always has increased preload, and the pulmonic valve will always close after the aortic valve. Wide splitting is when the P2-A2 split is much longer than usual. And usually this is because you have a delay in right ventricular emptying. So remember the P2 sound is going to occur when the pulmonic valve closes. So if anything delays that right ventricle from emptying, that P2 is going to be split substantially farther than A2. So examples of that would be pulmonic stenosis because the right ventricle has a hard time getting that blood into the pulmonary artery. So it takes the blood longer to fully eject or a right bundle branch block because the conduction through the right ventricle is slower and causes the aortic valve to finish faster because the aortic valve is from the left ventricle, which is supplied by the left bundle branch. And if that's having a fast coordinated contraction, the aortic valve will be done with its cycle before the pulmonic valve closes. The last is paradoxical splitting, which is when the aortic valve paradoxically closes after the pulmonic valve, which is different than in all the cases we've described before. And you might expect, and you'd be right, that this occurs when there's something causing a delay in left ventricular emptying. So that would be aortic stenosis or a left bundle branch block. Normally, there are no other sounds during the cardiac cycle, just S1 and just S2. 
However, there can be extra sounds called S3 and S4, which are also called gallops. The S3 sound is always abnormal in adults and usually signifies volume overload, usually from somebody who has congestive heart failure. The S3 sound is when the tricuspid and mitral valve open during diastole, the extra volume rushes into the ventricle, tensing the chordae tendinae, which are the tendons that tether the valve to the heart of the affected valve, and that causes the extra sound. This sound is heard during the rapid ventricular filling phase of early diastole and is therefore after the S2 sound. The S4 sound occurs at the very end of diastole when the atria contracts called the atrial kick if it's trying to squeeze in the last bit of blood before the mitral and tricuspid valve closes. If the ventricle is stiff and non-compliant, like if you have left ventricular hypertrophy, then there's no room for that extra blood and you hear a sound when the atria tries to jam that extra amount of blood into the ventricle. Because the atrial kick occurs just before the end of diastole to try to pack that last little bit of blood in before the valve closes, it's heard just before the S1 sound. Blood flow through the heart should be laminar and silent, so you should just hear S1, S2, S1, S2, and that's it. If there's turbulent blood flow, then you can hear a murmur. If you know the cardiac cycle and when valve should be open or closed, understanding murmurs is relatively easy. Stenosis is a problem with opening a valve because it's been narrowed, whereas regurgitation or insufficiency is a problem with keeping the valve closed when it's supposed to be closed. During systole, the aortic and pulmonic valve should be open to allow ejection from blood from the ventricles into their respective arteries. Because the tricuspid and mitral valves should be closed during systole, the murmur of tricuspid or mitral regurgitation will be heard during systole. And this is usually termed a pansystolic murmur. If you have aortic or pulmonic stenosis, this is usually termed a crescendo-decrescendo or diamond-shaped murmur because as the contraction of the heart progresses, the pressure builds up and then drops again, leading to a murmur that increases and then decreases in intensity. So if you listen to someone with aortic stenosis, it might sound like So you can hear that it's getting louder as the contraction builds up and up and up, and then dies off as the contraction is finishing. Classically, on physical exam, these patients will have pulsus parvus et tardis, which is Latin for a weak parvus, and late tardis pulse. This is because it takes longer to get the blood out through the aortic valve, and it's weaker because of the stenosis. If you have mitral or tricuspid regurgitation, this is usually termed holosystolic or pansystolic, as we mentioned, because it occurs at the same intensity for the duration of systole because the left and right atria have such low pressures that it accepts blood even at low pressures if the valve is incompetent. Mitral valve prolapse is a really common valvular lesion where you have an abnormally thickened valve that prolapses into the left atrium during systole, and that sudden tensing of the chordae tendine causes a click, and then usually after that you'll have an end systolic murmur if there's regurgitant flow. The last common murmur you'll hear is a ventricular septal defect. If there's a passage between the left and right ventricles, during systole, the left ventricle, which has higher pressures, will eject blood into the right ventricle, which has lower pressures, causing a left-to-right shunt. It's classically described as harsh-sounding. With that, we wrap up today's episode of the Crush Step 1 podcast. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, the publishing company behind Crush Step One, as well as all of my other books, for allowing us to put out this book in podcast format. Thank you for joining us, and please check out our other chapters.